Brace yourselves. The following presentation is intended only for immature audiences. Oh my god. And God said, let there be F-bombs. And they were good. And they multiplied. Right here in this podcast. me fatter for I have sinned. It's been about a month since my last episode. I hope your medical insurance is up to date. Yikes! Hey there. Welcome to episode 22 of the Hansel and Gretel Code. Not again! Uh, well, afraid so. In our last episode, we heard that the children heard everything the father heard from the mother. I heard that. And then we heard Gretel crying. What was that? Uh, that was Gretel crying. Oh, boy. And then we heard her brother comforting her. I paid five dollars to hear that? Uh, well, we also heard him say he was going to fix things. Idle boasting, I assure you. This is the biggest pile of crap I've ever heard. Uh, based on all of that, uh, hearsay, we decided that Gretel probably represents the feeling function. And Hansel probably represents the intuitive function. What are you talking about? You know, how we figured out those four functions of consciousness might be the best way to understand what this fairy tale is actually trying to tell us. Remember? No. Well, we're talking about thinking, feeling, sensation, and intuition. The four ways we humans have of taking in and processing reality. Each of us as individuals, well, we have all four of those functions. Although, depending on which of the two we lean on most heavily, and which of the two we'd rather not touch with a 10-foot pole, they correspond to and actually determine our style or type of personality. In other words, our typology. Pseudo-intellectual bullshit. Yeah, well, it's not everyone's cup of tea. But we've decided to use our understanding of Jung's typology as an innovative compass for finding our way through this fairy tale and sussing out its secrets. Secrets meant to rescue our culture from the modern-day witches who already have us locked in a cage and just can't wait to have us for lunch. Bollocks, just bollocks. Uh, you might not believe me, 
but I'm not trying to convince you of anything. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Just stick with me through the whole fairy tale. You're at least going to be entertained, if not super pleasantly surprised. Let me tell you why that is bullshit. Oh, jeez, Louise. Oh. Well, given the basic facts of Jungian typology and those four functions of consciousness, which most people know or at least have heard of through that whole Myers-Briggs thingy, it seems more than logical that Gretel's crying might best mean she corresponds to the feeling function. (laughs) Don't judge me, please. And in the case of Hansel, it would have been way too early in the story for us to figure out which of the functions he represents, except, what do you know? What? Well, the Grimms added a cheeky little clue in that regard by having Hansel confidently say he would soon find a way to help the two of them out of their predicament. In other words, the Grimms had Hansel predicting the future, an activity of clairvoyance commonly associated with the intuitive function. Can you see it now? And that's where we are right now. Who's going to listen to this? Hmm. I guess anyone who either understands all of that typology jazz or just doesn't mind hearing a newer, somewhat Jungian take on fairy tales. Whatever. Of course, based on the evidence so far, all of this can only be a hypothesis, when we're free to change or adjust as more evidence emerges in the story. Well, having already spent 11 years working this fairy tale through to the end, I can say with confidence that uh, we've pretty much nailed it. Gretel is definitely the feeling function, and Hansel... He sure as hell corresponds to the intuitive function. Who cares? Well, this is a matter of super serious significance for all of Western culture. But uh, I'll leave you to see that for yourself as we move along through the fairy tale. All we need to know right now is that there's so much more between the lines of this story than any simple Jungian trope. So, let's get back to it. And listen in as the story continues to work its metaphoric magic on all of us. I'm listening, but I don't like it. Part 1 Teil 1 In which we watch the little brother escape all conscious control. We send Penn and Teller up the tree, and then we get ready for some real magic, when the Grimms hand us a grimoire. What the hell is this? It's not a big truck, it's it's a series of tubes. It's an unknown color. Aber die Kinder hatten alles gehört, was die Mutter gesagt hatte. Das Schwesterchen fing an gar sehr zu weinen. Das Brüderchen sagte ihm, es solle still sein und tröstete es. Dann stand er leise auf und ging hinaus vor die Türe. But the children heard everything the mother said. So the sister began to cry terribly. 
and the brother hushed and comforted her. After that, he got up and tiptoed out the door. I'm out of here. Well, if Hansel truly is the intuitive function, I think we're witnessing how intuition normally goes about its business. That is, by tiptoeing out the door and into the night. Tiptoe to the window, by the window, that is where I'll be. Come tiptoe through the tulips with me. Yeah, yeah, ha, ha. Come on, it's the metaphor showing us how intuition escapes both conscience and conscious control. Now, pushing that thought one step further, if the mother and father represent the two remaining functions of consciousness, logic and sensation, it makes total sense that when intuition is on the job, it also escapes the bounds of logic and the facts of physics. Ah, very good. And those facts of physics are pretty much what the sensation function is all about what it deals with. Interesting. Right? See, that's what sends all of those professional skeptics like Penn and Teller and the amazing Randy. It sends them right up the tree. And as far as I'm concerned, they can stay up there in their treehouse, which, uh, I gotta say, might as well be the juvenile clubhouse of the Intuition Haters Club. These guys don't understand the first thing about intuition. And because they believe their own logic to be infallible, they not only think intuition is expendable, they hate the very idea of it. And that makes them just like the stepmother Frau Holzacker. You can't be serious. Well, I sure as hell am. But uh, I don't want this to be a diatribe on skeptics or a lecture on typology. Still, we're eventually going to have to understand a little bit more about these four functions, because the way they do their thing in real life, that's pretty much the way the various members of the Holzhacker family do their thing in this fairy tale. And remember back in episode one, I spoke about Stephen King's retelling of Hansel and Gretel? No. Well... If you're familiar with the Shawshank Redemption, just think about Andy Dufresne and Red. And you'll see how Andy has Gretel in his DNA, while Red has Hansel in his. In other words, the way those characters act, and the way they're mistreated in that story, that also corresponds to the way intuition and feeling do their thing, and get mistreated in real life. And uh, make no mistake, in our postmodern zeitgeist, intuition and feeling are not only misunderstood, they've been relegated to the prison of the unconscious by the dictates of Western culture. And uh, sure, that streamlines things in the eyes of the marketplace, which we might as well consider synonymous with Western culture, But we all pay a heavy price for putting up with the dictates of the marketplace. Because 
as we learned in episode 21, all creativity depends on those very same functions, intuition and feeling. Seriously? Yeah, it does, actually. And to advance the culture in any meaningful way, we need all four functions of consciousness to be valued and integrated. Not fed to the witch. See, what I'm getting at here is that the fairy tale is all about us. About ourselves as individuals, and all of us as a collective, as a culture. It's showing us how our psyche functions when we're under the severest sort of psychological stress. And what I mean by psyche is the sum total of our consciousness and our unconscious. I also mean both our collective psyche, which is the culture, and our individual personal psyche. Now, according to the metaphors of the fairy tale, the problem we all face is not just a chronic scarcity of grace, but the awful moment when what little grace there is completely disappears. Oh, crap. And what I'm talking about is a pretty severe depression. Oh, boy. That's not good. Remember, this literal famine, with its lack of bread and resultant hunger, it's a metaphor, indicating a lack of and hunger for something that we're calling divine grace, which in its turn has become, at least for some of us, a less than satisfying religious abstraction. No! Oh, goodness. We've all had moments we've thought of as being touched by grace. And I know we'd all love to have more of them. But for the most part, that word, and uh, even the religious rituals surrounding it, it never seems to satisfy or remedy our real-life lack of and hunger for some real McCoy something else we haven't yet named. Pizza. Uh, yeah. Well, that too. Of course, sometimes that hunger and lack of satisfaction can manifest as a full-blown depression. No! Although, mostly it's just a chronic case of low-level angst. A sense of unease over something we can't even put our finger on. Do we have any Cheetos? Now, for most of us with typical first-world problems, that unease can be way more significant than the depressing, often frightening headlines that hit us in the gut just about every frickin' morning. <gasps> oh, shit. See, in real life, most of us don't even realize we're chronically hungry for something that we can't seem to name, beyond calling it happiness or happily ever after. And as abstractions, happiness and grace, eh, they're pretty much synonymous. Just show me the money. Oh, sure, some people call it money. And yeah, while money as a problem solver is an easy call to make, we've been through all that, and we found money to be no substitute for grace, and that yet unnamed something else that grace actually represents. How many times have we been over this? Well, it's my opinion that if we could give grace a more recognizable name, we might be able to direct our efforts towards finding more of it and finally take care of this existential hunger 
and the near-universal angst the lack of it causes. Oh. Of course, this hunger and angst may not be acute and dire for each and every one of us right now, but it's something we'll always be vulnerable to, unless we can figure out exactly what the real name of Hansel and Gretel bread and of grace is. Now, speaking of grace, please remember that I could use the grace of your support. Inappropriate. I'm going to continue making this podcast regardless, because I've already discovered the secrets within it. Secrets that are vital for ourselves as individuals and for us as a collective, as a culture. So that's a given. But uh, I've also signed up for that buy me a coffee outfit, you know, K-O-F-I, because without your support, I might never have enough time to finish this work and share it with you. Go to a therapist. So, what do you know? I got a seriously generous, super ginormous big gulp from a longtime friend and fellow creator, Mike Gurevich. Um, Mike is the guy who created Illys.com, I-L-Y-S dot com, a seriously awesome online writing tool for helping you to concentrate on writing when you're trying to write. Oh, really? Yeah. In other words, Illys allows you to write without that uh, super pesky distraction of trying to edit while you compose. It really is genius. And... Just so you know, this isn't an ad for Mike and his creation. He's not my sponsor. I don't have one. I'm not looking for one. I just appreciate the grace of your support, whenever and however it comes. Okay? No, no, forget it. Forget it. And, uh, oh yeah. Remember, you can find transcripts, links, and credits for each episode of the podcast on the website. You know the drill. Visit us on the web at www.betweenthelines.xyz. All righty then. Let's get back to the magical business of calling things by their right names. My name is Pinkamina Diane Pie, but you can call me Pinkie Pie. Every pony does. <clears throat> See, as far back as antiquity, the practice of magic included the calling up of angels and demons in order to utilize their power for good and for evil purposes. And a vital part of that deal was knowing their names and knowing how to speak them properly. Oh. And that's what grimoires were all about. My name is Billy! Okie dokie. So, uh, according to this fairy tale, the first thing we needed to do was give the little brother and the little sister their real-life names. Which the Grimms promptly did when they baptized them as Hansel and Gretel. Or Hansel und Gretel. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Stephen King, well, he called them Red and Andy. And uh, I'm fine with all that. But... I'm also giving them their Jungian names, intuition and feeling. So uh, 
Get ready for some real magic to come out of that knowledge. We know your name. Uh oh. Part 2. Teil 2. In which the Grimms give us a medieval Mr. Rogers moment. And then invite us to a limbo party of biblical proportion. Hi, neighbor. Welcome to this neighborhood. Have you ever seen one of these? I ain't never seen nothing like that before. <clears throat> now, the manuscript just tells us that the little brother got up and tiptoed out the door. So let's listen to the Grimm's version of events and see if they put any real magic in the story. Gretel wept bitter tears and said to Hansel, Now is all over with us. Be quiet, Gretel, said Hansel. Do not distress yourself. I will soon find a way to help us. And when the old folks had fallen asleep, he got up, put on his little coat, opened the door below, and crept outside. Well, the Grimms added that jacket and lower door business to their original 1812 edition. And by the time they got to their final 1857 revision, they made sure that Hansel waited for his parents to fall asleep. Yeah, so what? Well, however we might interpret these extra details, the final revision reminds us that intuition has a life and a will of its own, not to mention a strength we're often blind to. Now, whether or not the Grimm's intended for us to interpret things that way, well, that certainly seems like a stretch, at least at this point, doesn't it? Yes, sir. Actually, though, I think we're all in for a surprise on that point. Really? Uh, yep. For now, though, let's just continue doing our own thing and keep looking for the magic in the metaphors. Okay. So, what about that jacket? Why is it mentioned? And what could it represent? I don't know. Well, it's clear later on that a literal jacket, having pockets... It's a necessary plot device. So, couldn't we just leave it at that? A simple bit of script continuity housekeeping on the part of the Grimms? Well, I think that we should do that. Well, then again, continuity in the metaphors? It tells us that it's a necessary, even important tool. So, as a metaphor, maybe it's something similar to a professional garment. Eh? Uh? Uh, you know, something like a doctor's white coat or a soldier's uniform. Hell, it even makes me think of Mr. Rogers putting on his cardigan. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, and what I mean is, it could symbolize a kind of professional attitude. The point being that a professional garment actually has an almost magical ability to affect the attitude of the person wearing it. Hmm. So, if we allow it to have a meaning like that, putting on the jacket signals a particular mindset and intention. And according to what we're going to learn later, that intention just might have something to do with the actual practice of magic. 
That is, what we think of magic with a K. Something that we're going to see has everything to do with the workings of our very own intuition. Oh no, you can't be serious. That is some bullshit right there. Oh, calm down there, tiger. Just let your logic take a snooze, and let your intuition do its thing, alright? Hey you! Yeah? Go to bed! Yes, now! Go to bed! Go to bed. <clears throat> okay. Next we come to this lower door business. Which probably means the lower half of a double-hung or Dutch door. You know what I mean. <laughs> no. Hey, you can always look it up on Wikipedia. I'll leave a link. Now, the logical implication here is that the child is short enough to only need the lower half of the door to be open. Now, while making it clear that Hansel is too short to reach the top half, leaving the top half closed might also make it seem to a less-than-astute adult that the door is still closed. Well, I don't know. In other words, this double-hung Dutch door business, it has us knocking on the door of what the adults know and what they don't know. Meaning, we've just broached the subject of epistemology. Oh, dear God. Oh, no. Hang on. Don't worry. We're not going to open the door on that subject. Thank you. All we need to say about it is that epistemology is the study of how we know what we know, which is actually what typology is all about. How we know and process reality, as well as all the stuff that doesn't seem real. I see six flowers. What the hell is this? I see seven chairs. I see these things now. All I can see is the end. <clears throat> well, this Dutch door business, it fits with a specific idea about typology concerning those four functions of consciousness. Specifically, that there's an upper or dominant coupling and a lower or inferior coupling. And as soon as the dominant coupling drops into unconsciousness or goes to sleep, as the Grimms have already indicated, the inferior coupling takes over and springs into action. Or, as we're seeing, at least one half of that coupling does. Now, another aspect of this half-door symbolism, it's that having only the lower half open means a person or consciousness would have to stoop down low in order to get through. Seriously? Of course, that would not only be inconvenient, it seems uh, logically stupid, right? Oh, absolutely. And unless you're having a limbo party, all you'd have to do would be open the top half. And now you got the whole door open, right? Affirmative. It's only logical. Amen. Yeah, well, forget logical. We're talking metaphorical. Excuse me? What? In typical Grimm's fashion, they've pointed us in the direction of more biblical symbolism. What? 
Yeah, well, in this instance, we've got three of the four evangelists of the New Testament saying pretty much the exact same thing on the subject in question. Oh, God. Oh, Jesus. Uh, yep. Exactly. So, let me give you the shortest one. Please, don't do that. Oh, don't worry. This will only take a second. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. That is so not funny. All right, well, enough of the little children business. In our next episode, we're all going to get a snoot full of moonshine. Oh, good. Actually, over the course of the next couple of episodes, we're going to get to know Hansel a whole lot better by uh, examining his uh, stones. What? And we're going to do that by the light of the moon. Listen to them, children of the night. What music they make. Alrighty then. Ciao a tutti. And if I kiss you in the garden, in the moonlight, will you pardon me? Come tiptoe through the tulips with me. Ciao, ciao.